Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. My guest today is a wonderful example of being the change you want to see in the world. With a 20-year career in wealth management, helping clients to make meaningful impact with their wealth, she created an unexpected second career as an author and advocate to advance equality in finance, to empower women financially, and to make gender equality investable. She's also advancing children's financial literacy to shape a more sustainable future. I couldn't be more honored to introduce Joining us from Zurich, Switzerland, Dr. Mara Harvey. Mara, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thank you, Molly, for the invitation. I'm really um, excited for listeners to uh, hear your story and to learn from you. Before we get to some of that compelling research on gender differences in earning and in wealth creation, would you uh, step back and share a bit of your own background and uh, help listeners to get to know you a bit? I really appreciate your commitment to financial empowerment for all. Uh, I know it's been quite a journey for you personally, so please. Thank you. Indeed. Um, My passion for all things gender equality goes back a long way. It goes back to when I was at university doing research already on labor market statistics and realizing that female Uh, participation in the labor market was uh, very low and very concentrated in certain sectors. Later on, when I joined financial services 20 years ago now, I, of course, realized that I was entering a very, very male-dominated space. But I also um, did not really believe that there were any hurdles to your own development or career advancement other than your own intellectual ability, your willingness to work hard, and your willingness to uh, collaborate and engage and uh, be very connected with people uh, in ways that would uh, would be beneficial for the organization and then ultimately beneficial for your own career path. And I think it took me the better part, part of 15 years to realize there are really huge structural barriers due to this imbalance in the economy. And that imbalance that is visible within organizations is also visible in the way we uh, in finance were looking also at our client base. And indeed, we were not serving women as clients the same way that we were serving men. And we very often considered that the women were not the decision takers on wealth management issues, that they were not interested or not as engaged, and therefore we also neglected them. And uh, it just dawned on me that all of this was so wrong on so many levels, and I really wanted to change it. So that's how my journey within the financial industry started to say, what if we did focus on the women? What if we asked ourselves every step of the way, where are the women and why are they engaged or not engaged and what could we do differently? And it was that journey that led me also to ask a very critical question to some of my research colleagues, which was, okay, let's assume I'm a woman. Let's assume I'm professionally uh, active and let's assume I'm going to work my entire life on par to a man full time and I have a pay gap. How much would that little pay gap influence my wealth creation over a lifetime? And that was a trigger moment, uh, realizing the implications over the long term of discrepancies, of imbalances today is really what got me super engaged in this topic, both from a wealth management perspective. How do we avoid missing all of those opportunities? It's good for people. It's good for families. It's good for society. And it's good for business. Uh, And at the same time, that journey took me then to exploring how we can fix certain imbalances that we see today in our economy by addressing the topic of money and equality with children. Well, Mara, there's so much. Before we get to some of the numbers, because when we chatted, I was really shocked about the numbers. um, I'm curious if you go back to how 
you grew up in your family. I don't know if you had you know, siblings or parental attitudes. And just a little bit about um, your experience as a child with money. And, and, you know, I remember my parents saying, okay, we're going to go to the bank and we deposited 50 cents. You know, so I do remember the notion of, you know, what money was and, you know, what it got. It didn't have a, a good or bad. It just kind of, I, I did feel like I had some education on it. So I'm curious your own experience of that as a young person. You know, it's it was very binary. I would say in my early childhood years, Money was never really a topic. It was never really a concern. It was, um, I would say, associated with a pleasant moment of my dad coming home on Fridays. He used to work in London. We used to live in the countryside. He would empty his pockets and we would get the small change, my sister and I, and we'd be allowed to go Saturday morning to buy some sweeties at the local little sweetie store. And um, then... All of a sudden, everything changed because uh, when I was 10 years old, uh, my parents separated. My mother had actually moved to the UK when she had met my father. We grew up in England, but she was originally Swiss. And as a foreigner, she was not working during those years in England. And all of a sudden, with the separation, she found herself in a foreign country without a job and with two girls to take care of. And so her immediate instinct was, I need to get back home. I need to go back to Switzerland where at least I have family and where at least as a, as a Swiss citizen, it's going to be easier for me to find employment. And money really became a, a daily issue. And I grew up with uh, my mother's messaging around, you need to make sure you are always financially independent. And I think it was because she experienced such a crisis, not having uh, had any form of uh, paid employment in uh, in those years of marriage, and all of a sudden with a rupture, uh, and not having any financial means until the divorce settlement, which took three years. And during that three-year period, just having to survive. So um, I would say a very positive, blissful early childhood and very... Um, conscious of the family issues around money during my teenage years. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Mara, did you feel a financial insecurity? And I could appreciate some amount of stress. Do you feel it translated to a deep insecurity at all? Or was it like somehow we'll find a way? I think it translated more into the determination to work hard and with the belief and also the messaging from my mother about you need to have a good education. And with that, you will always be able to land on your feet in life. No matter what hardships may come, you know, what you have in your head, people can't take away from you. And um, I think that uh, that was, I would say, associated with positive messages. I never had the impression that we were poor even though there certainly was a period during my life where I would argue we really were. But it never burdened me at that age of my life because we had what we needed uh, on a very, very basic level. And school was the center of your life. So no, you didn't have the coolest clothes and the coolest shoes and of course all of those issues. But was everything okay? Yes, everything was okay. And I must say, looking back now and thinking about what my mom must have gone through, unfortunately, my mother passed away last year, but thinking about what she must have gone through in those difficult times and how she coped and how she didn't make us feel that we were lacking anything Uh, despite the fact that she was also, you know, she had 50% invalidity after an operation on her back that went wrong. She couldn't even work full-time if she had wanted to. So it really was um, only a part-time job with a part-time revenue, and yet she managed to raise two girls, and I have a lot of admiration for that. Sadly, ex post, because as a child, you you don't really appreciate the sacrifices your parents are making. Yes, uh, my condolences for the passing of your dear mom and brava to her. Yeah, I mean, what a wonderful, blessed with such a great role model 
you know, and the gift of, you know, what you have in your head, people can't take away from you. That's just really, really fabulous for you and your sister to have that sort of uh, strength portrayed to you. Um, Mm -hmm. Mara, getting back to this workplace. Okay. So let's just go through some of the, the research. I appreciate how, you know, data driven you've been and how you've used that to help educate uh, and to help influence. So perhaps share with listeners some of the, the, the numbers. With pleasure. So as I mentioned, trying to understand the long-term implications on wealth creation of pay gaps is really what triggered a lot of the work that I have done over the past years. I was just curious to understand if there are structural barriers to equality in the form of pay gaps. What does this mean for your wealth, for you as a person, for you as a family? And we found out that even just a 10% pay gap over a lifetime accumulated can lead to a 40% wealth gap. And that was shocking. That was, I think, everybody couldn't believe the figures when they saw them. Indeed, the research team spent quite a few days testing the model, calibrating the model. They thought there was a problem with the model until they came back and said, no, no, this is actually how bad it is. And then, of course, we factored in other life circumstances that can affect uh, women uh, very significantly, which can be career discontinuity for family care reasons or uh, flexible um, work time solutions in order to accommodate uh, the work-life balance that might be required to raise a family. Um, The longevity of women and factoring in that whatever women do accumulate during their lives needs to last them longer on average. That can be five to seven years longer. And ultimately, also, the risk appetite of women. Now, here we cannot stereotype and say all women have lower risk appetite than men. That is not the case. But on aggregate, we were seeing that pools of capital held by women were being invested in a more conservative way with a lower risk appetite and therefore with lower compounded returns over decades. And just even a 1% difference in a compounding effect over decades can lead to materially less wealth creation. And all of these factors together, if you would accumulate them all, if you say there is a pay gap and uh, there has been career discontinuity and uh, the person finds themselves only working part time in order to reconcile family and work and the person is going to live longer than their spouses and the person has a lower risk appetite, all of that can actually lead to women running out of wealth before they run out of life. And female old age poverty is a problem that is inherent to our societies today. We're going to potentially live much longer than our resources will allow us to. And we know that pension funds are very unlikely to be able to close those gaps and help people to sustain the quality of life that they would hope for. This is very sobering. And at the same time, I'm very grateful for the ability to share this information. And you and I talked about the empowering opportunity that we have, not just as individuals, um, but also institutions. So let's talk a little bit about um, within organizations, Mara. And, you know, I think this the notion of equity has come up in so many ways. Um, and, you know, you have some experience with this. Th- thoughts about... You know, how do organizations, I mean, they don't want this kind of, you know, imbalance and inequity. Um, What is it that you see working well where organizations can bring it up, can be open about gaps that may exist, and then start to close them? And I'd love to, you know, just hear your thoughts. And I know it's not an easy topic. No, indeed, it, it is very complex. There are so many facets to this. But I do believe that transparency is the first essential step and accountability the second. And ultimately, if we want to close gaps, where there's a will, there's a way. And it's not always easy, but it certainly is possible. 
What gets me a little frustrated is when people say it's a pipeline problem, because I always say, actually, even if there is a problem with a pipeline, there's a lot that you can do with the existing resources within an organization while you build a pipeline. And an example I love to give is the following. Let's assume you have a management team which is predominantly male and you don't have enough female representation on that level of seniority. Well, what if you would just take that uh, management committee, for example, and say, you're going to invite a handful of female representants, um, sorry, female uh, members to represent uh, their parts of the business by extending your management committee. It's not just about swapping uh, men for women, but give people a platform to grow, give them a platform to be visible, create ways in the organization that it doesn't always have to be a trade-off and that it doesn't become, well, if we're going to put more women, then it's all to the disadvantage of the men. And I think that this is where absolutely strong leadership is called for. Because, as I said, I'm a big believer in the fact that if we want to solve the imbalances, we are capable of solving for them. And there are things that we can do in the short term. There are things that require uh, a little more time. And certainly pipeline building requires years for those pipelines to materialize. But I, I believe that it really is a question of how is it tackled from a leadership perspective? Is the tone at the top of an organization the right one? And is there really a willingness to move the needle? And how fast do we want to move the needle? Because if we don't set ourselves goals, if we don't set ourselves timelines, just hoping that policies and generic practices are going to lead to different outcomes isn't enough. I always say, you know, that's change management by wishful hoping. You actually have to drive change actively if you want change to come to life. Change management by wishful hoping. I'm writing that down. That is brilliant. I uh, agree with you wholeheartedly. It's a, it's a great leadership opportunity. And let's spend a little time on, I think, a mindset of the win-lose versus the win-win. And I think it can be easy for people to think of this as a zero-sum game, a pie. There's only so many spots. And, you know, one that goes to one gender is a loss to the other gender. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's, it's really important for people to own a limiting belief because this is a grow the pie opportunity. And, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I do, I do really hear you on the pipeline word. And I think if you if we define, if you will, best in only a certain way, has to have this kind of experience, has to have done specifically this, that, or the other, and it's a narrow criteria, you know, you're, you're, you're probably right. You're, you're never going to fit that criteria. I think the opportunity is expanding um, what, what the needs are, appreciating that at some point someone may not have uh, 10 out of 10, maybe they have 8 out of 10, but there's an opportunity to bolster folks in their growth. And I, and I use this very broadly beyond just gender, you know, for, for all um, diversity. And I just share a story. I had a, a dear friend, and this is 25 years ago in the professional services uh, space. And he was the HR person and a very, very senior managing director was doing the annual promotions. And they went through the slate, very set process. And then toward the end, the senior person just noted, well, no women. And this is pretty advanced for 25, 30 years ago. And mm-hmm. uh, my friend pipes up, well, you know, we, we have um, no, no women, you know, for this, for this um, round. And he goes, well, who's close? So he went through a number of uh, folks and that were all highly regarded, you know, maybe not quite as far along. And this gentleman, right in front of the eyes of the entire senior team said, okay, these three people, he's like, they're in. And he looked at three gentlemen and he said, you own her, you own her, you own her. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all. But what he said was, this is a shared accountability. These people can be successful. We need to ensure that they're successful, not just for them, but for us. And, you know, it was like a deafening silence. And my friend was so blown away because Back then, I mean, it's still actually, I think, quite something now, but back then, here was someone who really realized if I don't make a very visible move 
here. This is good. This, you know, I, I will be gone before I'm able to address this. And they were really able to change the dynamic of the gender mix um, proactively and in a way where, you know, everyone was all in. So I just share that. And I wonder your thoughts on that. That is such a brilliant example. And that that happened 25 years ago is absolutely remarkable. Had that happened more broadly 25 years ago, we would already have the kind of equity and equality that we're striving for. Um, no, it's, it's a perfect example. It really is. Because it is about creating accountability. And I think it's over the past maybe three to five years that we've moved away from talking about mentoring women to talking about sponsoring women. And that, I think, was a very early example of sponsorship that you highlighted. It's about telling people you have to sponsor and be responsible for the outcomes for the person that you are taking accountability for, for their development. And when you do that, it does become an absolute win-win situation because what, are the, what is the likelihood that somebody who is being sponsored, who is being given opportunities, is actually going to totally fail? Because they're going to be so motivated to do their absolute best with the right guidance, with the right support, their chances of being successful are just all in, you know, all the odds are in your favor. So I think it is a brilliant move in an organization to take that kind of approach. Yeah, I love that. The, um, you know, the part of the ethos of the whole Say It Skillfully is everyone owning, hey, we're all part of the problem and we're all part of the solution when people don't speak up. And I'd like to segue a bit for Women, in some ways, where inadvertently women may not be their best friends and, in fact, being a bit a part of the problem um, in raising awareness, perhaps, and um, advocating for themselves. So I'm wondering if you've seen examples um, where people perhaps haven't been as skillful, haven't been able to come across in a way that they were taken, um, you know, in a positive light and perhaps you know, did themselves a disservice. And then we'll contrast with maybe, maybe folks you've seen who have been able to advocate effectively so that you create this win-win feeling. Thoughts on that? Yes. Um, look, I can, I can share a very personal story on that, if I may, which is uh, in one of my past development discussions, this was a few years ago when I was being considered for a broader role and a broader responsibility. And if you looked at uh, the, the achievements, I would argue, okay, I think I pr tick pretty much every one of the boxes here that uh, are required by the description of what is needed and so on. And uh, I was always told, you need to have more confidence, you need to speak up, you need to kind of pitch who you are and what you do. And um, so I allowed myself to, you know, try to express that constructively and say, this is why I've, uh, I think I qualify, this is why I think I would be the right person for this, and this is what I bring to the table, and so on. And at the end of the discussion, a few weeks later, when there was a feedback loop, um, I was basically told um, something along the lines, I can't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of, it's not about what you think you deserve. And I was like very puzzled by that feedback because it was almost as if being too assertive and trying to point out that this could be a really good fit because you really believed in your capabilities and what you had already demonstrated and delivered would be a good basis to steer that discussion. And it turned out to be completely the wrong basis, which was, uh, which was uh, mysterious in so many ways to me at the time. And as you rightly said, there probably must have been a more skillful way to express that. And uh, I didn't possess the right balance in how I uh, I was voicing my my side of the story uh, versus really having a deep understanding of what was at the forefront of mind for the person sitting at the other side of the table. That's a great example, and I can relate, and I'm sure there's a lot of folks nodding their heads. Um, I think uh, there's an important distinction, and it's not a good or bad or right or wrong. It's just important to realize that what some people can say, another person can say the same way, and it's not received that way. And I think there's been a lot of gender research 
um, you know, a woman might say something exactly the way a man would, and it just doesn't land the same way. And I think this is part of the play it skillfully uh, opportunity for all is finding something that's authentic and effective for each of us. From a strategy standpoint, I think taking the high road and starting with the organization's interest, and this is the, I know that the organization wants to fairly value folks and to and, you know, really have people motivated to, to provide their best work and compensation is a way that, that mirrors that. And I'd love to have a conversation so that I'm on the same page about what I need to do because I want to crush it. You know, I want to do amazing work and uh, feel valued for it. So here we're still at kind of what's right for the organization. And I think lots of times before people get into their jobs, they maybe aren't clarifying what great looks like. And so the ability to just be very lockstep with management about if I make these major accomplishments, is this what it takes, you know, and just being open about it. Because um, I think lots of times the managers aren't, themselves aren't necessarily so skillful yet. So it's really incumbent on the individual to create the shared understanding. Um, so ideally, that's all set up so that one once achieves, right? It's not a big deal. Um, but if it hasn't been, I think the back and forth to let someone know that, you know, you're just trying to um, help the organization be open and, and upfront about what great looks like. And obviously, you know, if you've misunderstood something, you own that. And um, if someone gives you feedback, which is great, thank you for the feedback. I didn't realize that's how I was coming across. That wasn't my intention. Mm-hmm. Pause, right? So the person's, it's not, no one's good or bad or right or wrong. It's all fairly subjective. Um, a suggestion for you, what do you think would have been more effective for me? So this kind of back and forth dialogue. So Very using good that point. Notion. Yeah. yeah that, that, so that's just a way perhaps. And, and I really encourage folks, if it's a little uncomfortable, you know, it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about this, so, which is fine. There's no, don't hide it. You know, I think the more transparency, you mentioned transparency, um, I think that that can help both sides feel like it's not a win-lose, but we want to do the right thing, right? No one wants to be able to print out a report and say, well, this sector doesn't make, you know, the right compensation compared to another one. I mean, that's not what people want. That might be the reality. Let's not make it bad or wrong. Let's at least own that that could be the case. And then let's think about how do we together address this in a way that, you know, people can appreciate what it's like to be in others' shoes. Um, okay. I have so much. I want to jump to the the, the books. Okay. So the authors, you have this great, you know, finding and, and you're doing this at work. And then Mara, you became an author <laughs> and you had these delightful children's books. So tell us about this. So uh, this indeed was a very unexpected journey and it's been a wonderful one. So my uh, research into pay gaps and um, women's wealth dynamics and women's understanding of risk and our societal uh, notions of risk led me to look at research that related to pay gaps that are visible in pocket money. And that was shocking because it was the realization that the money biases and the biased money messages that are all around us in the media uh, that, uh, in short, put largely... Uh, the girls in the bucket of the spenders and the boys in the bucket of the earners. And there's quite some research out there about how these messages are reinforced without us even realizing it every day in media messages. And uh, acknowledging that pay gaps actually are visible in pocket money was shocking because it meant to me that these biases go so deep that we're not even noticing it. Because no parent would intentionally discriminate their daughters. Of that, I am sure. Um, And uh, the more parents I speak to when they see this research, they say, but how is it even possible that girls are getting less pocket money than boys? We treat our kids equally. And yet, collectively, these patterns are perpetuating themselves. Uh, These patterns perpetuate themselves for many reasons. The boys are bolder. The boys are... Um, keener to talk about money, they're keener to earn uh, some money, they ask more for money, and the girls don't seem to do so, or the girls are steered more towards the chores that maybe are unpaid chores. I just take a typical example. If you wash a car, 
you're probably going to get some pocket money. If you wash the dishes, you're probably not going to get pocket money. But both activities involve washing. Why is it that we value one task so differently from the other? And um, to just use that as a basic reflection um, was one of the starting points to say, how can we make this problem visible? How can we make sure that we talk about equal pay to kids? And so I wrote a story all in rhymes to make it engaging because I thought if we're going to talk about money, it is a serious topic, but we need to do it in a way that isn't dry, technical and jargon. It has to be engaging. So I wrote in rhymes. And then I asked my daughter to proofread the little story I wrote. And she did. And she came back to me. She was 12 at the time. She's 15 now. She came back and she said, Mom, look, I love the story. It's super cute, but I don't see the point. Why would a little girl earn a penny less than a little boy? And I just sat there flabbergasted because I said, okay, my own daughter who grows up with a mother who is an advocate for diversity and equality, who talks about gender pay gaps and all sorts of issues, you know, at breakfast, at lunch and at dinner, has not understood that this is not a problem for my generation alone. It's going to be a problem for the next seven generations. But she genuinely thought this is only an issue for my mum. And this is why she's ranting on about this day and night. Uh, but it doesn't affect me. It's not relevant to my generation. And that's where I really had to sit her down. And I did two things. I said, first, honey, I, at your age, also thought I was equal to everybody else. And it was only 30 years later that I really understood how deep inequality runs. And the second thing I did is I sat her down and I said, we're now going to watch together Hidden Figures, the beautiful movie on the female scientists behind um, putting a man on the moon. And then I explained to her in that movie, basically, one of the things that happens. I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but for, for maybe for the listeners who have not seen it, in the movie, there is the problem about the fact that there were no toilets for colored women in the wing where a specific person had to work and she had to jog along the campus to be able to go to the bathroom. And that, of course, affected her work time and her productivity and she was criticized by others. And I told my daughter, we're still fighting for the toilets. It's just in a different shape and form, but we're still fighting the same battles. And by the way, that was only 50 years ago that that, uh, was still, you know, uh, the level of inequality that was visible in society. People couldn't even go to the same toilet. And I think that was such a wake-up call for her that she said, you know, I finally understand why you're doing this, Mum. Uh, and she said, I'm proud of you. And that kind of like melted my heart entirely. And I was like, okay, this is all worthwhile. If even just one other little girl feels the same way after it, it's all worthwhile. And this made me adamant about bringing the conversation on equal pay to children. Many people I speak to say, but this is not a conversation for kids. And my reaction to that is, but if our kids don't know that there's a problem, they're not going to be equipped with the skills to solve the problem. And this is true for little girls who need to learn to speak up. They need to learn to talk about money. They need to learn to ask, how much is this job worth? because they're going to need that skill set by the time they get to the labor force. And if they practice 10 years at home, isn't that wonderful? And the same way we need the little boys to be engaged in these uh, discussions as well and to understand someone, somewhere in life, you will have an opportunity to make the world more fair and you will need to grasp that opportunity with both hands as well. Oh, it's, so that's what so, made me want to write stories for children. And then the journey continued from there, and it became a series of five books. Oh, I am so inspired. I'm holding one of them, and I, I can't. They're beautifully uh, illustrated and so creative. Uh, so I, we get this in as we wrap here. Where can folks find your uh, books and any, any other way that they may want to connect to you? Please, Mara, let us know. Thank you. That's so kind of you. The books can be found on my website, which is smartwaytostart.com. And uh, you can also find uh, the book series on Amazon if that is easier for people to get them delivered across the planet. Um, they're all, all the book titles start with A Smart Way to, 
And it's a smart way to start, a smart way to save, a smart way to spend, a smart choice to make. And uh, the fifth book is A Smart Way to Start Doing Good. And it's about the SDGs, which I simplified for children because explaining sustainable development goals is not so easy, but explaining start doing good is easier for little children. And um, yes, it would be an absolute pleasure to know that these books uh, can help children far and wide. I have made the very first book available for free as a PDF on my website because I believe that Every child should have the possibility to start their financial literacy journey and every child should have the possibility to learn about equal pay and that is the reason for which uh, this first story is available to anybody who wants it at no cost. Uh, I love it. I'm hugging you from afar, Mara. First off, brava for helping us um, helping us be better, helping us nurture our youth so that they can create better lives for themselves. And, and bravo to you for pursuing your passion. And I can just hear it in you. And I wish that for all listeners to be engaged in work that you find meaningful uh, and, and a way to grow and to make the world a better place. You know how to reach me. I'm cheering for you. And I look forward to finding ways how we might collaborate even more, Mara. You take good care. Delighted to welcome my caller now, Aisha from Pasadena. Aisha, welcome to Say It Skillfully. Wow, thank you, Molly. It's, um, it's, I'm really excited to be here. It's an honor to have met you. Well, I'm, I'm really thrilled to have you on the show, and um, I'm really keen to hear what's top of mind for you. Thank you. Um, on December 10th, I came forward on Twitter, uh, only having Twitter follow, only having about 20 Twitter followers, um, to share my story of suspension and now firing from the um, Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine. Um, my suspension was um, without any warning and happened within nine hours of uh, teaching or moderating a discussion amongst med students about bias and um, racial health disparities. So top of mind for me are a couple of things. Um, one, I moved to this institution because its values resonated with me and I moved from Atlanta uh, in order to do so. And I, I just, um, there are days I wake up and I still can't believe that this has happened. And so how is it that uh, you you make decisions that are <laughs> that are pretty life-changing in order to pursue an environment um, within an institution that resonates with your values and do that successfully? What is it that I missed something in my interview trail or researching of the institution? And then the second part is, um, you know, those of us in medicine are, are kind of keep our heads down, uh, get the work done kind of folks. Um, we're, we're trained like that through medicine and then residency. Um, I've gotten tremendous support online um, but for the most part, the majority of my colleagues are silent. I've got some very fervent supporters within the organization that are supporting me, but I don't know how to bring along others so that this does not happen again, um, but without dehumanizing myself. Uh, I want to hug you. <laughs> I do. I want to hug you. You're very strong and you're very courageous. And I'm, I'm sorry for this. Um, and, you know, as listeners probably nodding their heads, we've read about this and it happens. And I'm very sorry it's happened for you, but know that some goodness will is coming out of this. And obviously you're going to be stronger and um, you're going to be able to lead in even more powerful ways, both yourself and those around you. I have no doubt about that, Aisha. Thank you. So I think the number one thing for me is, is just within your own self, the system of you. And I can imagine you know, the disbelief, you know, what did I do wrong? And I just want you to hold strong that you are an amazing person. Yes, we do all make mistakes. And we'll talk a little bit about what perhaps could have gone down. But I just want you to feel good about you because I can hear it in your voice, right? And so know that no one takes that away from you. First and foremost, you own that. So, and I'm here for you. And I know many people are also out there. Um, you know, the, the, the situation, there's obviously some very different realities. You know, you've heard about the shared reality concept and people are viewing that 
you know, that you, um, you know, did something inappropriate, that wasn't your intention. It doesn't sound to me in a nine hours time that any institution could necessarily, you know, get an accurate shared reality. And I'm a bit sad just to hear that it was so shocking, you know, and, and perhaps not as, um, just having the transparency of what going on and the chance to hear the different perspectives and perhaps um, take a more thoughtful, metered approach. I understand. I see organizations feeling pressure where we need to make a decision. We need to show some kind of statement. And I, you know, I, I applaud the urgency, but I would just off really encourage folks to feel like you've got a full 360 picture. So, um, you know, I think from that process standpoint, I don't, you know, you couldn't control that and I get that. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want you to beat yourself up having not been there. I can't say, you know, what you did or didn't do around. Um, let's start first with the colleagues around you who are supportive. And I think, you know, that's great. And I think you want to just be grateful and appreciate that. And this is what I'm observing is there's a lot of folks who just aren't able to really say what they think needs to be said. There's a lot of fear. There's mm-hmm. a lot of self-interest and I would, I would, I would just offer compassion that, you know, people, and it's legitimate. The fear is legitimate, you know, that they don't feel that they can be who they are. And I, you know, that's why I have this whole show is I want people to feel empowered to be who you are and say what needs to be said skillfully. And so I think, you know, honoring the people who are supporting you. Um, if you have a chance for some of the folks that you really care about and you're, you're really wondering why they're not speaking, perhaps you could go into a one-on-one that says, you know, I honor you. Um, I've appreciated your support in the past. This has not been easy for me. And I, I, I'm wondering what's going on for you. And right, perhaps give right. folks a chance, right? Just to get into dialogue with no, in- with no you, what intention is just to hear what's going on, not to engender a particular action or anything. And for you, that may give you information, Aisha, for where they're at, just as you would want people to do that for you. So I just offer that as some way for some of those relationships that maybe it might feel very hurtful, I could imagine, right? And and you don't want to just not do anything. So the way you might extend an olive branch could be like that. Let me just pause there. Is that helpful on some of the dynamics with colleagues? I, yes, I, I think if I um, weren't dealing with the suspension, it would be. Um, unfortunately, part of the suspension is not being able to talk to anyone who is faculty. So um, you can imagine having moved here, my the, the friendships that I've made are all faculty. Um, thankfully, there have been faculty to reach out to me, um, to check on me, um, to celebrate things that are going on in our lives that have nothing to do with the school. Um, and, and that's been truly uh, life-giving, um, especially during a pandemic and we're all on lockdown and we're isolated. Um, so I, I think part of the dynamics is also, you know, knowing that there are people who uh, do feel comfortable, brave enough, um, feeling that they're doing the right things in, in um, checking on me and making sure that uh, they've, continue to be um, a supporting influence in my life. Um, and, and there are others who I, I, that haven't reached out. And, and to be fair, these are not necessarily folks that I'm particularly close to uh, on a personal level, just professional colleagues. Yeah, I understand. And I think it's great. I just want to say thank you to all the folks that are reaching out to you and doing the right thing. Um, and I, you know, have... Um, I'm a bit heavy hearted about it because I could imagine it's just very hard to be in an institution that you see a valued colleague not being treated in a way that you would want to be treated or you might think is right. And I think that's hard. And I just I would hope that folks within any organization where you're seeing that um, can raise the hand and say, hey, you know, if this were you, is this how you would want to be treated? Is this how we want people in our culture here to feel and know that, you know, it's not lost on people what's going on. Um, and, you know, so I just would encourage folks to consider their own true norms and do what they think is the right thing so that they can sleep well at night, you know, cause you can only do what you think is right. We can't control how other people respond. Um, but I think I just want to offer that staying silent 
in the face of something that you don't believe is right is is not um, an option. And you know, boy, the last few months have really uh, shown a light, shined a light on that. Segue to when you made the move, and I really appreciate you came across the country. You know, your friend's base is fairly professionally oriented, so I can see it being very unsettling. When when we interview institutions and we in interviewing, I really always encourage folks to think, yes, they're interviewing you and you want to get the job. At the same time, you want to do your best to really get to know the institution and culture because, you know, and I can just feel it. You're very, it's very meaningful to you. And, and I think I feel like for me, I feel a sense of betrayal for you. I'm like, wait a second, you know, I came into this and now it's not what I thought. Um, so I might ask how, when you first came aboard, did you ask about culture? I'm just curious how I you did. brought that up and, and how, what were the answers and the questions? Just tell us a little bit about how you, pursued that sure and I and I don't remember exactly word for word I'll just share um, how I felt um, and and mostly what I felt was encouraged I, I am very family oriented um, the majority of my family is in East Coast is on the East Coast um, in, in Atlanta in Maryland in Toronto um, and so I knew that even though I was very excited about the mission vision and values of the school, um, that it was important for me to um, gel with the folks who would be doing the interviewing. Um, and so I, I still remember laughing on the phone call uh, when I had my phone interview. Um, I remember um, that good nervous anxiety that you have because you're so excited. Um, but I remember mostly it being a very comfortable interview. I didn't feel that the folks who were interviewing me um, um, were, were trying to be negative or nitpicky or, or make me feel uncomfortable. I, I just remember laughter and feeling comfort. And so when I flew out to Pasadena uh, for my in-person interview, I vowed to be myself fully. Um, and, and I was, and um I think that's partially why I succeeded in the interview. Um, I, I remember laughing with the chair of the uh, recruitment committee. I remember um, speaking very candidly uh, with the interviewees, with the interviewers about um, concerns that I had in terms of uh, race and culture. Um, and I remember, um, I remember that they. I remember leaving that day just feeling I've done my best. I showed them who I was. I feel that the folks that I met are people who I could get along with. Fantastic. Uh, I think that's great. And you had this intuition. I guess I would offer for, for all listeners, you know, it's kind of a love fest. You know, these, you just feel it. It's so awesome. And so, I think about it in how to manage the downside and a way to ask questions that are about when conflict has come up mm-hmm. and it's great that you brought up the race and culture thing and talked about it, but I would rather than kind of assume the positive intent, here's a chance to be the skeptic and say, you know, talk about a situation where it was edgy. Talk about a situation where, you know, there was an employee X and a situation Y and push folks to share how, how you could see the actions of an institution, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so I would offer this. I, oftentimes I, I work with young people and they're interviewing and I'll say, look at, ask people, what is the career track for someone like me? Can you share some of the folks and what they've specifically done? Cause it's one thing to say, Oh, there's a lot of headroom for you here. Right. It's another to say, here are some specific people over the last few years and here's the tracks that they've pursued and make it real. Right. And, and, and I just think that's part of, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a forensics interviewing, if sure. you know, right? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And so for folks, if they might be worried, I'm not trying to be negative, but I just want to make sure that we're on the same page. And I'd like to just see how, you know, the organization behaved. When did you feel like the organization made a misstep or a mistake? And how did, how did you recover? Mm-hmm. Something to that, right? So I think, 
and you know you had no reason to be suspect so again none of this is done in any critiquing fashion Aisha but it, right. you know I think this notion of 360 it's like okay what about when it's not beautiful and it's not unicorns and rainbows right, right? Yeah. indeed 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 right. that's right yeah that's right. yeah no that's excellent advice thank you so how can I be as you're moving forward anything that I might do to be helpful uh, or any questions you have about what's ahead for you Oh, wow. Um, you know, so, so much of me is still grieving um, that I haven't gotten that far. I think right now I just want to share my experience so that um, the most good can come of it. Um, I, I want us to all learn. I, I want us to all, um, and when I say all, I, I really do mean all like you said, what, what is your true North? And are you in an environment that allows you to be who you are? Because I think we all deserve that. Um, regardless of the industry that we're in, we all deserve to be ourselves in the space that we spend so much of our time. And I, I would just, um, you know, appreciate your encouraging people to find that for themselves and to find the courage to, to do that for themselves. So they're not having to conform um, for, for an industry or for a business. Yes. The wisest of words and, uh, you know, things happen for a reason. We don't often know why, no doubt, no doubt that you will be in a better position as a result of this. Um, we've just crossed paths here. I just want you to know I'm here for you. If there is anything I can do to be helpful in any way, Aisha, do not hesitate. I will not. Um, and, and I just want, you know, I'm cheering for you. I, um, I appreciate who you are and what you stand for. And, um, and I thank you for being part of the solution and making the world a better place. You take good care. Thank you so much, Molly. It's lovely to be here today. As we close, I listened to a wonderful podcast, The Happiness Lab, that psychologist and meditation teacher Tara Brock did with Lori Santos, the host. And it's a source for my thought for the week. When others are behaving in a way you don't like, they're hurting. Rather than judge, open your heart and care. And that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Reflect on your top takeaways. And know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality. Essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work, and in life. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 